Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And this week on the podcast, we discuss intervention in Syria. The return of crime to British politics. A new centrist party and the lessons from Emmanuel Macron. So Stephen, let's start by talking about Syria. We're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. It's pretty, well, as I say, it's a pretty fast moving situation. But one of the reasons it's such a fast moving situation is I saw Donald Trump tweets from 31 minutes apart. The first one that said, Russia, we're coming for you. You don't get to back animal Assad, like gassing his own people. And then, yeah, half an hour later, one that said something like, we need to talk. There's no point in having an arms race. And it was like, is this the same person tweeting this? Or is just literally like, as the Fox News segment, like the pundits change. He just reflects the opinion of whatever he's heard last. But I mean, he he, he does. There There is, I think it may have been the Washington Post, which is the thing where they tracked his tweets and what was on Fox News at the time. I mean, it's odd because it both is a fast moving situation and this kind of slightly surreal stasis, right? Where gas attack happens. Various politicians say, oh, something must be done. Macron and Trump agree that something must be done. And, then and they're going to make a statement about what something is and, you know... Yeah, what... but the last time there was a, a gas attack, there was a story, and I don't know whether or not this bit is true, that Ivanka Trump had basically seen pictures of dead children, had shown them to Donald Trump, who was therefore saddened. And that's why they did a, a small limited strike on, on one particular facility. But then it was not followed up with any kind of great... You know, furthest it was a kind of it was an action and reaction, and I guess that that feels like that might be again what we get this time is we might just get some form of action, but one that will not materially advance peace in that region. Well, it does kind of feel a bit like um like that is sort of the weird cycle that um I really don't like the phrase the West, but I don't know as I keep using it anyway. Then Europe and the United States have basically got into with reference to Syria, and then. Essentially, there's a situation where they don't want Assad to stay. They don't want the alternative to Assad to Well, I don't think they know what the alternative to Assad is. I think Um, that's the problem. And essentially, occasionally, uh, Assad does something that is felt to be sufficiently awkward than we chuck a bomb at an airfield. So grotesquely, you know, uh, reprehensible, rather than just being mundanely reprehensible, that we're kind of moved to act. I mean... We were talking on the Facebook Live, um, which if you ever are interested, we do on a Wednesday afternoon, about the kind of proxy discussions that people have because the discussion itself is is too hard. I think you were saying, um, you know, the idea about whether or not there should be a vote in Parliament. And I think that's exactly how, you know, the whole of Syria has been approached 
that actually some of the stuff that is really, I think, vital to know, for example, you know, the, the so-called Caesar images, right, which were smuggled out of Syria, which were pictures of what was happening in Assad's prisons and bodies pockmarked by torture um, on this absolutely kind of industrial scale, received relatively little coverage because the problem was that there wasn't any point to them, right? I could The only way in which I could have seen them getting the coverage that they deserved, I think, is had they been used to build a case for war, but no one actually wanted to build a case for full-blown intervention. Um, and therefore, they were just kind of, they just happened as a bad thing. I think that sort of Adam Curtis thing of everyone just kind of goes, oh dear. And then that was kind of, and everyone kind of just sort of moved on and went, yes, of course, he's butchered thousands of people in, in horrific conditions in his own prisons. But we don't really know what to do about the situation. So there's not really a lot more to say about that. I sort of think that, well, when you look back through um, places where intervention from the outside has worked and where it hasn't, basically successful interventions tend to meet uh, three rules. The first and kind of the most redundant, because it's always the case, you know, is, you know, is, is something bad happening. The second is, well, what is the group of people who you want to do it on behalf of who are going to be in charge afterwards and then three can it be done in a time frame that is uh politically survivable for the government uh at, at home in terms of domestic a- appetite and it feels to me unfortunately open and shut that syria fails both of those second two uh tasks but because that is a really unpleasant conversation to have it does feel that instead we have a lot of yeah things where it is, I think, quite easy uh, to critique, not actually necessarily how Ed Miliband whipped Labour to vote in 2013, but the language and behaviour around it. And you see it with, you know, with people who I agree with, then it's not a good idea, you know, then there is not a, a meaningful plan to do anything about it. But when people talk about not rushing to war or stopping the war or being anti the war, it's like, well, no, no, that like you. That that yeah. Well, when people go, oh, you know, like I mean, I can't remember who it the was. The war started who, without you. The who, war is who, carrying who, who on. Who wrote after the twenty fifteen vote to um, extend the bombing campaign against ISIS in Iraq into ISIS controlled Syria? With so there will be another war. And I just thought, well, that is like literally every bit as glib and offensive as kind of going like something must be done because in both cases you're ignoring the very real fact that there is a war and there are people. Um, and yeah, I think kind of the sort of congratulatory um, kind of tone of from Ed Miliband of I stopped the rush door. It's like um, the rush for whom um, or for whom? Yes, I'm, I yeah, I'm not yeah. sure that Syrians would necessarily agree. Thank you for stopping this invasion of our country and the huge internal displacement of thousands upon thousands of people. No, um, that's already happened. But yeah, I think because that leaves a bad taste in the mouth of a lot of people, including people who, who agree with the outcome of the vote. It's really easy to have this kind of like 10 minutes hate against Ed Miliband. It's really easy to have a kind of like, you know, analysis of the things people don't like about Jeremy Corbyn on foreign policy. But isn't the fundamental problem that the trouble is if you never intervene somewhere, then you can always say that what happened there is not your fault. Like that's the that's the kind of disparity in blame apportionment. If you intervene somewhere, then sort of everything that happens is deemed to be your fault. Whereas if you don't, your inaction that may lead to deaths is not deemed to be your fault. I don't know, I feel like, I'm not actually convinced that's true, right? Because quite rightly, in my view, um, part of the legacy people assess of the major government uh, and of Douglas Hurd as foreign secretary in particular is of the failure to intervene in a preventable uh, genocide, I think, you know, you know in a, of um, people in Bosnia, right? 
and a ditto with Rwanda because actually the weird thing is failed non-interventions you can again show them they're failed non-interventions because they do meet the tests of what is the group and you can leave in charge what is the thing you want to achieve can it be achieved within a kind of acceptable from a domestic perspective time frame and I just think um yeah I mean this is uh, yeah this is not the only reason why John Pilger's um stars faded by saying if you look at the reputation of john pilger it just feels impossible i think to sustain the argument that non-interventionists don't cop some flack too i think the difference in this case i i'm not sure about that because jeremy corbyn gets praised all the time for being on the right side of history for iraq i think he was arguably on the wrong side of history in the former yugoslavia and all the conflicts that arose from that and he gets absolutely, I mean, apart from a few kind of self-described centrists, um, he really doesn't get a lot of criticism for that at all. But that's crucially because we did go into the former Yugoslavia. Yes, I suppose if his side had prevailed yeah. and then we'd been able to see the full consequences of that, that would have been, but it's hard to yeah. get, get angry um, about a hypothetical. Where, and because he was not, yeah, there, there is really no argument that Corbyn's opinions mattered at all as far as British foreign policy with reference to Yugoslavia. I don't actually, with, with reference to Yugoslavia, was entitled up until 2015, right? The, Jeremy Corbyn is not a um, an active actor, as it were, in any of these debates. So it's, yeah. kind, it's, it's kind of, run. I suspect though, that the reason why it is more immediately annoying is that it's always, uh, maybe this just reflects on my, you know, deep psychological flaws but it's always more annoying when someone makes an argument where you agree with the conclusion uh so in this case i agree with the conclusion that there is not a, a i cannot see what a meaningful intervention in syria that succeeds looks like um there's something infinitely more irksome about an argument which arrives at a conclusion i agree with by the wrong route than there is by a an argument which arrives at a conclusion i which I suspect is why you feel the the, uh, non-interventionist... Yeah, I think there's a problem about the feeling that people have just got to the conclusion that they were always going to get to without any consideration of the facts. And I think that that's that's the thing that I think is is irritating. I think it's perfectly legitimate to look at the situation and go, I can, you know, I'm not ideologically opposed to British military intervention overseas. However, you have not presented me. And that's how I felt in 2013. However... I'm not convinced that you're going to make the situation any better. I just think you're kind of just coming up with a knee-jerk response. I think in the case of Syria as well, it's been very hard. And we've run lots and lots of pieces on this. It's something that the magazine has come back to again and again in trying to explain to people exactly why it's so intractable about what the forces in the region are. There's a really brilliant piece uh, in The New Yorker, which is a profile of Mohammed bin Salman, the 32-year-old new crown prince of Saudi Arabia. Um, and what that really brought to me, it's by Dexter Filkins, is that um, is a kind of, I thought, a really sophisticated understanding of the shifting alliances in the region, particularly this sort of strange, uh, really to on the surface, but a kind of unlikely understanding between Israel and Saudi Arabia in the sense of that they both are extremely worried about Iran, Iranian influence in um, in Syria and generally kind of whether or not Iran is kind of empire building. And that has its own connections in terms of a sectarian conflict with that being a, uh, Iran being dominated by Shia Muslims, whereas um, Saudi Arabia is dominated by Sunni Muslims. Um, and I think that sort of level of debate is, you know, is one that is not happening. And again, 
it, and also because it's incredibly difficult. Like there's a, I, you know, I have been reading about this stuff for years. I'm sure you have too. And if someone asked me to explain the kind of origins of the Syrian conflict now in, in three sentences or less, I would still struggle quite hard. It's just really foreign policy is quite intractable and difficult and very often about two, but you know, finding the less bad of two options. Well, yeah, exactly. I think it's always, I mean, yeah, obviously pollsters have to eat too. So I completely understand why YouGov was doing a kind of like, how does the public uh, feel about this? But it was one of those things where I kind of, and I'm aware this is why I'm the problem and, you know, why everything I believe in always loses, yada, yada. But the point of representative democracy is I don't... As you don't have time to look into these issues, I'm a specialist, I'm going to do it. Yeah, what I want, and I think, I mean... That's what I want from my politicians, right? I fundamentally do not have time to be on top of automation, foreign policy, like how big our deficit should be. So I'm I'm okay with delegating some of that to other people. Yeah, and I think we've said this before, but yeah, kind of thinking back to the last vote, I did find it a bit depressing in terms of the what I see the point of having a representative democracy. That the speech that everyone uh, lauded was Hillary Benn's speech because... I could kind of see why, because it was quite a depressing debate to listen to, because on both sides you had very good speeches where basically people kind of went, look, we're actually broadly, other than the final paragraph in a lot of them, they were essentially the same uh, speech. Yeah, kind of went, look, so here are the problems, here's the counter set problems, and then on balance. Is the... And that to me is what um, what you ideally want your representatives to do. Now, obviously, Hillary Benn had the job of, of rounding up the debate, so it's, it's it's slightly different. But it was a speech where he basically went, the left fights fascists, ISIS are, I, ISIS are fascists, uh, therefore we are going to, you know, let's go and fight them. Oh, I we- can't be doing with that argument about who's, who in history... This is a, But this is exactly one of my problems with it. It's like who in history has most fought fascists. One of the problems is always through seeing every new conflict through the lens of the most, like, obvious last available example, right? Yeah. So you've got, you know, people refighting the Second World War, if that suits them, or people sort of rewriting the, re- refighting the Iraq War in the lead up to that. But actually, it's it's never going to be, you know, you're never going to have a war that is exactly like a previous war. It's yeah. just <laughs> and I also don't really... Even Iraq 1 and 2 were yeah. not the same. I also don't really want, you know, a speech which is that reductive. And so I just find it a bit dispiriting that that is the... Uh, Overwork. Yeah, I think if, if someone asked me to define the whole of if you know if someone hadn't seen that debate, so if you're you know anyone whose job it isn't to watch the whole thing, the speech which I think summed it up partly because it, it it concluded in the same way that the majority of the house did was Yvette's, which was actually quite a grim speech. It, it did not posit that it was easy. It made it very clear that it was a decision on which one could come down uh, on on both sides. It was you know I thought you know probably I think. Yvette Cooper's best speech. But you know what else is incredibly depressing is the fact that there are loads and loads of stuff that we could do not to ameliorate the Syrian conflict but to ameliorate its effects and CF putting more money into refugee programs, taking more refugees ourselves. I think when Zan Rice, our former features editor, went over to Lebanon two Christmases ago, it was like one in four people in the population of Lebanon was a refugee. That's a country that's just seen a massive, massive influx of people and yet that's not what we we don't want to do that bit. Yeah, it's kind of like something must be done. It's just like, do you want to take more refugees? No. It's like, oh, do you want to just chuck a bomb at an airfield once you've made sure there aren't any Russian personnel near it so it doesn't actually kick act, off something? Doesn't actually massive. kick off something. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, that was depressing. Thanks, Stephen. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So crime is back. Yeah, and you wrote your column in the magazine about it this week, which I thought was... I learned a couple of things from that. I learned about the fact that crime went away as an issue. Uh, I thought that was really interesting that it just dived right down the political agenda. As crime numbers fell, I mean, did it track exactly it, as much as that? So there's a there's a massive lag, right? So so crime in the UK has fallen basically since 1994. So it's 1993 that Tony Blair, then Shadow Home Secretary, stands up and says, tough on crime, crime tough, tough on, on the causes of crime. Yeah. And then... The great Tony's powers were such that crime immediately started to fall after he wow. said that around the Western world. Uh, Four years before he became prime minister. Yeah, That's people, like Obama winning that Nobel Prize before he even became president. Yeah, some people say and it may have been to do with wider global trends, but I think it was the speech. So crime then fell you know, pretty steadily throughout that period. Now, the salience of crime as an electoral issue did not fall at anything like that rate. Um, although that is... Partly because, for various reasons, uh, both political parties believed it was in their interests for it to be high salience. Uh, so the Conservatives presumably thought, this is our bread and butter issue, we're always going to win on this. And Tony Blair's new Labour thought, this is a way of saying we're not like old Labour, we're going to be super tough, this is actually a way to rebrand ourselves and, and they thought they had the centre. they thought they had a persuasive policy argument on it. I had forgotten quite how much stuff the Blair government did on crime and justice bills. I think there were 53 bills in the 10 years yeah. that um, Blair was uh, prime minister. Obviously, I'd, I had completely forgotten about ASBOs as a thing, which were like in the papers pretty much every day, this idea that we were plagued by, you know, these youths who were hanging around and they needed, you know, they were playing their stereos too loud. And also responsible for the worst Martin Amis novel. Or is it the worst Martin Amis novel? There are so many contenders. Which is uh, the one that Tibor Fisher was said was like finding your favourite uncle masturbating in a playground. I think that is Lionel Asbo. As as well as as well as Labour having a, a very big criminal justice agenda uh in that in their last stint in government, the Conservatives had a number of uh proposals where they were directly in opposition to the government at the time. William Hague, uh yeah, ran on this idea that McPherson had had made the the Metropolitan Police too nervous to ser- stop and search. That's the uh, post Stephen Lawrence review that yeah, one that said that was institutionally racist. institutionally racist. In two thousand and five, after you remember Tony Martin, the farmer who shot the burglar, but I believe shot the burglar in the back. Tell me if I'm wrong on that. With one of them, he laid in wait and shot the other one, and then he shot the other one in the back. So not while he was the running away, cut and dried self defence. Oh no! I mean, like it, you know, it, <laughs> one might hope the, for. The, as the jury found by ten to two, it was it was not self defence or yeah. But you know, the Conservative Party went into two thousand and five effectively with a Tony's Mar- Tony Martin's law, which weirdly, I'm kind of fascinated by the stuff which somehow managed to survive the Howard Cameron switchover because, of course, uh, the Conservatives did introduce a law about reasonable force, uh, which I mean in many ways is effectively the law exists. Yeah, it's kind of the classic mm. of like a manifesto commitment to like 
underline your existing bit of statute. Um, but um, but that's come back again. I mean, the Daily Mail is running a big campaign on the front page this week. It's had, you know, how dare the family of the burglar who got killed in Hither Green, just up the road from where I live, actually, how dare they put floral tributes to him outside the home? And you kind of like, well, I, I mean, I, I, I get that he was doing a bad thing in burgling, but that doesn't mean that his family probably aren't sad that he's dead. Yeah, I mean, it is... Yeah, and I, I think... But that's one of those classic cases, isn't it, where it's basically, we like this person, this per like the householder, he's an OAP, he's an upstanding member of society, like we're firmly on his side, we don't need to hear any kind of more about the case. And actually, as it turns out, in this case, the charges have been dropped, and there's no, as I, as I understand it, there is no further action. But it was one of those ones where it was, it felt very 2002 to me. Yeah. So crime is is back, but the interesting... So I think there are a couple of, uh, of interesting things, both about that case and the wider divide. One, the, the lack of a parliamentary majority means that the Conservative Party in some ways are in this sweet spot politically where they have the benefits of being a right-wing government and then they can announce things and, you know, when a crisis happens, Theresa May can kind of look very, like, solid and prime ministerial on TV. But they also have the advantage of being a right-wing opposition because because they can't... Sorry, because, because... And YouTube, because of the wonderful you know, things she does. Yeah. <laughs> because they uh, they have no parliamentary majority, they can they they can do things like David Gort going, oh, you know, this is shocking. People should be able to defend themselves in their own home. And it's like, I mean, David, imagine for a moment, crazy idea, you are the Secretary of State for Justice. Just 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 close your eyes, David. Just imagine for a moment <laughs> that is your job. To be fair, he has them. only been Secretary of State for Justice for about a minute and a half, Which so he's I'm, probably quite confused. But I mean, in, you know, in, in years of Justice Secretaries under the Conservatives since 2010, I mean, that's basically a decade. Yeah, you know that it's they, like a dog year, they basically. Are, isn't they it? are responsible for like fully half of the people who have had that brief since 1979. Of course, because they only created yeah, that role. Well, no, not just, not just Modge. I mean, the Lord Chancellor's role. Blair only had two... Major, I think, only had one. Thatcher, I think, maybe only had two. I mean, they have they have really sort of shuffled through them. And you've got the kind of life expectancy now of a kind of White House press secretary. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. So part of it is this sweet spot discourse-wise that the Conservatives are in because they can call for things and somehow that's okay because everyone accepts they can't pass uh, stuff. The second is, is that it exposes that actually... At the moment, the Labour Party doesn't really disagree with the Conservatives that much on the Mod brief. Well, it this was the thing I really, funded. I really got from your column, which I thought, and I obviously being slightly more animated on this subject, um, to take a bit further than you did, which was this idea that, yeah, as you say, they want more funding for police cuts. And actually, Jeremy Corbyn did a good job during the election campaign when the terror attack happened of pivoting to say, not only saying, like, I think there is blowback from Western foreign policy, but also saying, and also, I, I, this is a story about austerity, but. I okay. Here's the, here's a very cruel way of reducing it. What is the point of Jeremy Corbyn if he can't advocate policies that I agree with that the Daily Mail hate? Like in the sense of the fact that our prisons are extraordinarily overcrowded, the conditions are appalling. They're locked into horrible private sector outsourcing contracts for all kinds of stuff with horrific break clauses signed by noted genius Chris Grayling. Um, the probation service has been cut in two with all the hard cases given to the public sector bit and the easy cases, which then still the private sector companies said they were really having trouble um, dealing with. Fundamentally, one of the things that Labour could do is just slash the number of people in prisons. It could change the sentencing guidelines, I presume. There are me- mechanisms for, for doing this. And that would be incredibly unpopular. But I sort of feel like that those people have gone for Jeremy Corbyn's tent anyway. So one of the quotes I couldn't include in the column because I just couldn't work out how to fit in the structure but has really stayed with me is someone who said, in the Shadow Home Office team, uh, they have policies 
and in the shadow, so, you know, better reunion rights, you know, concrete things that would be different in terms of how refugees were treated. It. But in the shadow justice team, they just have spending commitments. And and that is kind of the thing, right? I, I absolutely think that we should pay prison officers more, spend more on the prison estate, um, but we should also shrink the prison estate. You can argue about whether or not the best use of, of Holloway prison afterwards is luxury flats in terms of the need of that community. However, it feels to me unarguable than luxury flat flats are more useful than uh, locking up people lo- for endless up. sentence. One of the um, things yeah. that, um, that's just been, you know, is, is a typical example of something that it needs change and was an error from the start is these idea of um, indeterminate sentences of public protection where people can get, for example, a sentence that says you are going to serve this amount of time, then you'll be released. But because your original offence, say, involved you being drunk, if we see you in a pub again, we can recall you to prison and then you will have to wait in prison while your sentence is protested. Now, there has been there has been movement on this because it was just, uh, essentially, it sentenced people to, it was, it was sentenced to life. And guess what? You know, sometimes people who had drunkenly hit someone in a pub fight when they got released several years later did go back to the pub and actually weren't causing any trouble then. But um, David Blunkett himself, who was instrumental in them being introduced, admitted that they were an error. But there are loads of examples like that in in prisons policy that actually a liberal government... But then this comes back to the fact about is Jeremy Corbyn aiming to run a liberal government? Well, I think actually on, not? on, on crime and justice, right, he is... I think, you know, the, the, the thing I think is disappointing... Where is, he on, where is he on drugs? Um, I have never seen Jeremy Corbyn on drugs. Bah, 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 bah. Um, but the interesting thing no, is... No, but he's, he's pro-total decriminalisation of, of prostitution. That's his personal... And certainly John McDonnell has done a lot of work with um, uh, English collective prostitutes. So, which, you know, is is much more what I would think of as the Lib Dems kind of classic position than the Labour tradition, which is Nordic model, which is only decriminalisation of people selling sex, not of punters. So I would have thought he would be more in, on the legalisation of drugs end. But so in drugs, he is on what I would describe as a more sensible, I pro-legalisation position on, on drugs. I think the disappointing thing is, yeah, I think the, you know, the, the police cuts as a tactical gambit was great and you've kind of, you know, you've got to do some things to try and win an election. Uh, however, there's an opportunity to underneath that have a more sophisticated policy program than a manifesto which literally mentions drugs twice. Once about the NHS, once about preventing drug smuggling by putting more money into the border force. Um, particularly because there is now a critical mass of conservatives who are uh, sensible on it, which means that it, it's an attack where it's quite hard for the Conservative Party to go, no, 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 you can't do this because enough people will fortunately put up their hands and go, but come on, this is quite a good idea. Also, surely we've reached a critical mass now. When even like the chairman of the Conservative Party, James Cleverly, has admitted that he has previously smoked the old reefer in his past, then it's just, I just think that, come on, come on, lads. Oh, it is an interesting, because oh, we should get onto the Conservatives and, and their hilarious mess over crime as well, but um, we... I think it's an interesting example of something that Brexit has derailed because if Brexit hadn't happened, Nick Clegg's plan, once he stopped being leader of the Lib Dems, was to talk a lot about the need for uh, sensible drugs policy because that was one of his big frustrations and he was unable to get uh, past the Commons. Now, one of the, I mean, there are policy disappointments I have with David Cameron and are bigger, but they are things that I know I actually disagree with him on. The reason why, to me, the thing which is most disappointing within his own context, as it were, is David Cameron has a much more liberal and sensible private opinion on drugs. 
and did before he was leader, but you know, as a politician, is on the record saying much more than the position he held in government. Um, lots of his close allies believed that once he stopped being prime minister, he would suddenly give a speech where he went, you know what, I've had a sudden conversion to my old views. So if Brexit hadn't happened and Cameron had been able to resign not in disgrace and Nick Clegg hadn't had to reinvent himself as Captain Europe, you would have a situation where the previous prime minister and the previous deputy prime minister, neither of whom you can exactly say, uh, you know, yeah, they're not going to appear in a remake of The Big Lebowski anytime soon. Would Sorry, you've been... totally derailed my thought process by going, if I were going to recast The Big Lebowski with members of the 2010 to 2015 government, who would play, who who plays John Goodman's role? Eric Pickles. Eric, yeah, Eric Pickles. Surely who plays would... Jesus? George Osborne would make a great Jesus. Yeah. Okay. Uh, further suggestions. You for... can't fudge with the George. Um, but um, but anyway, the point is that there was, there was no, a moment. You can't say that about George Osborne being Jesus. That's libelous, Stephen. It's fine. He doesn't listen to the podcast, does he? We'll be all right. He's too busy going to the theatre. Also, I had forgotten that about about the. It, it's not about Jesus. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. please don't sue me. Oh. <laughs> we should probably. Well, tell me about yeah. T- tell me, finish about where the Conservatives are now. Sorry, that was a bit before I derailed you. You were going to. Um. So. The slightly hilarious thing about the Conservatives is this weird way they have to pretend that they have to pretend that it's not about uh, the cut. So it's like maybe it's about um, this decision we took four years ago over stop and search, which had no noticeable effect then. And also, crucially, crime is rising. Stop and search has fallen in London. Crime is rising everywhere. Violent crime is rising everywhere, right? Therefore, any policy solution which goes, it's about this thing we did in the capital. It was may- a bit hopeful. It was a bit like, maybe if we were nastier to people who don't look like our core voters in the home counties who we assume to be white, then maybe crime will be okay. Yeah. Um, it's it's nonsense. It Now, it is also true that the Metropolitan Police has consistently been rated. So the argument that um, sort of May's partisans make is, but look, the Met is continually found to be inefficient. Therefore, it has received enough money. That is, there's one of those things where it's incidentally correct. Let's say that, um, you know, then the I earn 80 grand. Just, you know, if you were thinking about whether or not I should earn 80 grand, just just, just throwing that out there. Worth every penny, Stephen. Um, you know, um, and I am somehow racking up a grand's worth of credit card debt every month. Now, yes, technically, I I do not need more money. However, if you were to reduce uh, the amount of money you were giving me, obviously I would then get into financial difficulty. And it's kind of the same with the Met, right? I think there is a, I think then the Conservatives are right in the abstract that there actually is enough money in the system for the Met to do what it does better. However, you actually, it's actually quite hard to make people more efficient in terms of how they spend money while you reduce it. I don't know why I decided to invent this hypothetical salary for myself when I could have just used benefit cuts as a an actual as a real more world example. example. But also, um, I'm just tell me, talk to me about stop and search because you've mentioned it a couple of times, and I think you know I am uh, a thirty something white woman. I have literally never been stopped or searched. I my interactions with police are literally nothing but. Well, okay, sometimes they're a bit leery, but um, not on my part, I hasten to add. But tell me about, because you've been stopped and searched multiple times, right? Yeah, I mean, not not actually, you know, the, you know, that is, yeah, people talk about a lot about, you know, like, I think that is a real world change in, 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 in something government policy has done, which I have noticed immediately in my, my life. And then I would expect to be stopped and searched, you know, at least once, I don't know, a quarter or something, yeah. And kind of, yeah, and kind of not, you know... I mean, I don't think I've worn a hoodie outside of the house since the mid-noughties, but, um, but, um... 
a sensible fashion choice. But yeah, like yeah. kind of you know, like wearing you know, wearing my my you know, wearing wearing a suit jacket or whatever. Yeah, you know, that is just a thing which used to occasionally happen, right? You would just someone would stop you and pat you down, and you'd have like this kind of awkward like please and thank you kind of you know, please don't take offence at any uh, yeah. I, I sure hope. I hope you don't read Morning Call. <laughs> um, yeah, I sure hope your delay to my to my schedule hasn't hasn't affected anything. Because I mean, this is this thing. Right? Crucially, I mean, the obvious reason why Stop and Search being clamped down is is not the explanation. Stop and Search has not fallen in most of the country. Crime is rising in the, across the country. Um, yeah, crimes like the crime rate overall has has gone up by more in Coventry than it has in London. So Coventry this is, a- is not a rare cheer for Theresa May, right? Because she faced down the police federation and she also said, she made an argument against stop and search and the way it was used. did it in a very effective way. The, the mistake then, so the reason why some people uh, are rushing to blame stop and search, I mean, in some cases it's just, you know, straightforward racism. But in the early noughties after McPherson, stop and search did go down and crime did go up in London, even though it fell everywhere else. Because this is basically because what the Met did then is they were basically told just stop searching as many people. But you were still as like, basically, so they searched fewer people. But I'm not saying for a moment that, yeah, obviously not every white person who gets stopped and searched uh, is is guilty of something too. But if you halve arbitrarily the number of people you stop and search, you are still going to be searching proportionately more black people than you ought to be. Um, but crucially, some of the people who you have arbitrarily stopped searching will be people you you probably did have an intelligence-led uh, reason to search. What Theresa May did, and it is basically, I think, the one thing I would say at the Home Office she did, which was both right and also an effective bit of policy making, is she very effectively camped down on illegal stop and searches. So actually, the proportion of arrests, both in a percentage of searches resulting from an arrest, but in raw numbers, has basically not... The proportion of stop and searches hasn't gone up. Sorry, the proportion of arrests has 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 gone up, and the raw number has basically stayed the same because they did a very good job of clamping down on its illegal use. However, the depressing thing in all of this is once Theresa May goes, uh, the public does on the whole, still think uh, stop and search is great. Uh, and I imagine the next Conservative leader will lapse back into that kind of stop and search is great, you know, the police never have questions to ask. I mean, so yes, I don't get stopped and searched anymore, but something which happens to me every other fortnight in the in the lobby is a police officer in the House of Commons will stop me and tell me that there is not an L, which is the bit which uh, allows me to go anywhere in the parliamentary lobby, on my pass. There is an L on my pass, and I have to do this, oh no, I'm terribly sorry, I'm afraid there is an L on my pass, right? You know, that that is that is still a thing that happens. Um, I was, you know... I think that's something that's hard for people to understand when it's not the texture of their everyday life. In the same way that I remember Stella Creasy talking about the fact that people just assumed that she was a secretary when she first started, right? The way that you just... It's very hard because because that, has, because that, that isn't a sort of new experience to you that you almost sort of forget that it's it's not something that other people will have experienced. I think that's a hard thing. Uh, You talked about the authoritarian thing, which I think it's really interesting. I've written in the magazine this week about the new centrist party. But um, the fact that Paula Surridge at the University of Bristol's research was about the fact that of people who describe themselves as being on the left, only a third of them describe as left liberal. The rest say they are left centre or left authoritarian. And actually, the big space in British politics is for a party which is economically left-wing but heavily authoritarian. And you might say, well, wasn't that what Theresa May was trying to do with her Downing Street speech or with some of the kind of workers on boards stuff? But a lot of those people are also inured against the Conservatives just as a brand. But she also was very popular when she was 
saying those things and I think that is why yeah and it's true and I was really fascinated to find out that if you look at 2015 UKIP voters they basically have the same views on renationalization as Labour voters that's you know there are interesting crossovers in terms of where people's the different axes on which people kind of make their vote and also the things like the stubborn resistance to that Tory brand in some of those places otherwise you would think Theresa May would be your kind of shining shining goddess and on that image yeah in a field of wheat (laughs) And now it's time for a section we like to call... I'm back. No, 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 no. Fix the spend antenna, tune it in, and then I'm going to enter in it. Your skin like a spinner, the centre of attention. I'm back for the win. I'm in a resting. The best thing since wrestling. Resting in your kids' ears and nesting. I'm going to stop. We actually call this section You Ask Us, but... Um, <laughs> you ask us to stop rapping because it's the whitest thing that's ever happened. Me doing Eminem. Can you imagine? Yeah, I could actually feel my black half shriveling. <laughs> it was weird. Just, it was repulsed. Literally half of my body just cr- just cringing. And the other half was like, yeah, this is pretty impressive rapping. Um, but um, the actual question we've been asked uh, is... Is the conditions for a new centrist party unique to France? Because the one, the, you know, the, the, the kind of the shining light of people who want to have a new party that basically is anti-Brexit, but kind of very socially liberal is, what about Macron? And we kind of always glibly answer... That's a very different system, presidential system. But he did have great success in the Legislative Assembly, right? Marsh got loads of seats. Yeah, I mean, so it's odd. So it, it happens, this 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 question is, is very well-timed because today uh, Francois Hollande, a.k.a. Flanby, is back selling his, his is book. Is he? Yeah, his book, yeah. And in his book, he has a lot of critical things to say about his, his old pro- protégé, Emmanuel Macron, including where he basically goes, well, look, the guy got incredibly lucky. And I think he does, um, he lays out the various reasons, because I think in some ways, ultimately, France has a system which is in many ways even more cruelly majoritarian uh, than ours, because there's the added risk that you end up with a really unpalatable choice if you don't um, vote the uh, correct way. Mm. But, you oh, know, you mean so, in the sense of like the, Le, the Marine Le Pen versus Macron thing? Yeah, so because of the two-round system... Then um, your final choice might be between kind of somebody who you disagree with who's too, you know, too into reforming labour laws versus an actual fascist. So the actual, the, the non-vote splitting uh, risks of first-past-the-post are, if anything, even more acute. But, you know, the, he sums up well, even though obviously he has an axe to grind and a book to sell, the various, well, he, he slightly uh, glides over one of the of the factors that Macron had in his advantage, one of which was that the party he was emanating from was in in literal pieces on the floor after a very unpopular uh, time in government, which helps. And the socialists didn't even run a candidate, did they? They no? did. They ran. Oh, did Hamon. they? Yeah, remember oh, my tiny Benoit robot, Hamon. my tiny robot overlord. Um, but um, but he got bless him. No. Way. Oh, yeah, because Alon didn't run again, right? He, he could have yeah. run as an incumbent. That's Unf- why. I mean. Unfortunately, Hamond Ham- Ham- uh, decided to do an impression of uh, the robots he wanted to nationalise uh, in in the debates, which was not helpful. And there um, was a even more to the left candidate in Jean-Luc Mélenchon, right? And so that sort of helped a little bit too. I mean, um, I mean, yeah, yeah. Whether or not he was to the to the left is a, is a, is an ongoing argument. Uh, but um, but but anyway, there was JLM, and there were there were so the left was split. The official kind of the left wing government had been discredited by its stay in opposition. The right, which you would have expected to win, had a candidate in Francois Fillon who had a scandal. Who long time listeners will remember of him paying uh, his paying Mrs. his wife Fion? to act as an yeah paying his wife Penelope to act as an assistant, despite the fact that she a stayed at home and did no work, and two, and I think this is still my absolute favourite 
part of this scandal gave multiple interviews in which you go yep i'm a housewife i mean it wasn't it wasn't even like they were kind of like it's like doing the hillary clinton i wouldn't want to stay at home and bake cookies in reverse going i just stayed at home and baked cookies yeah i mean oh i've been paid money oh no okay yeah so it wasn't like they were kind of trying to maintain the you know there, there was no attempt to maintain the disguise um yeah so you you did have you know an imploding right and also crucially he did only at that point get 25 percent of the vote and yes um on marsh did very well in the legislative elections but they also had the because basically in an odd way you have the problem of first past the post but also well i think this is also a problem of first past the post but you also have its brilliance turned up to 11 under 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 the two round which is the if you're first, you're, the, the multiplier effects are are very powerful. One of the things that on Marsh successfully did is it managed to come first in an awful lot, and because they were slap bang in the centre, and this is why some people on the left really didn't like AV in that referendum, because obviously uh, under a transferable vote system, being fairly inoffensive in the middle is not a bad place to be. But crucially, we shouldn't forget... And it's easy to forget this now because his popularity is, although actually given the general unpopularity of politicians, actually Macron may still be the most popular politician in France, but he'd be more accurately described as the least unpopular now if that is the case. Um, I, I, I will check before next week. But um, Macron was at the time the most popular politician uh, in the country. Um, now, the difficulty for people who want to set up a new centrist party is... Well, that's. I think the difficulty is exactly that, which is having finding the leader, finding the leader who is exactly the sweet spot of fresh and therefore without a whole list of policy positions that they can be attacked for for the however, but also has enough name recognition. In a way, it, like this is the sort of Trump thing, right? Which is that everybody knew who Donald Trump was, but actually no one really knew what his policy positions were. And you got these ridiculous articles being written about, you know, Hillary the hawk, Donald the dove, right? that people could just project onto them. And a weird version of that happened with Jeremy Corbyn, where people were quite convinced and sometimes still are quite convinced that he holds completely different opinions to the ones which his long parliamentary record shows. So you have to be both very well-known and recognisable and a kind of clean skin to some extent. Yeah, and I just think that that more than... Well, I just think basically the thing about any kind of new centrist party, uh, as well as the the kind of issues uh, that you talked about earlier about why that doesn't, yeah, then this center is not where people think it is, is ultimately all of the politicians who could even semi plausibly lead it before you get into how effective you think that party would be. Don't want to do it. Yeah. And, all, and, and I just think, yeah. And all the ones who probably do want to do it shouldn't do it. And I also think that, and I think you and I have talked about this before, that you can't have an anti-Brexit party. Like that, where does the policy platform go down, you know, as you go further down the wheel? You can't just have a political party. I don't know. I just, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe in the sense that, you know, UKIP was an anti-Europe um, party and an anti-immigration party. But I think it had then a series of kind of policy proposals that kind of coherently lined up underneath that, or at least enough to get it, but I mean, crucially, in the European elections, but obviously it didn't really break through ever in um, well, I think UK elections. This is so one of the one of the interesting effects of Brexit that I don't think people have really noticed yet is we are going to lose the one nationwide proportional election, which is going to make it, which is obviously a place where UKIP got a lot of joy, the Greens got a lot of joy, the Lib Dems got a lot and of a joy, and a lot of funding, frankly, and crucially a lot of funding. Right. So any new party once we leave the European Union is going to have this problem where it is not clear to me what their home banker of an election is. And without that, I don't really know what your launchpad is. 
but you know and the Lib Dems, I think, would definitely testify to the fact that it, when you're a smaller party, it's just really, really hard to get on stuff, to get your message across, to differentiate yourself. I mean, very oddly to me, given that Labour and the Conservatives are both in the same place in the sense that they both think that freedom of movement has to end and they both think that there should be no second referendum, that that despite that, the Lib Dems are still so struggling to make, particularly get onto the BBC, to get onto broadcast, where there is a duty to represent a range of views. But that's the reality of being a, a, a you know, a fourth. I guess they're not even the fourth party in the Commons, are they? They're fifth. They're fifth behind who? DUP. Oh yeah, no, they're not. They've got twelve. DUP have got ten. Ah, okay. Sorry, I, I think I'm still stuck in. 20, but I think, I think yeah, I'm stuck in 2015. But I do think you know, and it is partly I think Vince Cable's fault. But the fact that ultimately the Lib Dems have only been able to get into this podcast in a kind of like final thought. Hey. No one hears from the Lib Dems. What are those is, lads up to? Yeah. <laughs> If you're from the Lib Dems and you'd like to tell us what you've been up to, um, why not tweet me and Stephen at Stephen KB or at Helen Lewis or, um, you know, write in, send a semaphore up, send a pigeon to the office, uh, a Lib Dem pigeon, a Lib Dem dove, in fact, send to the office. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague, Helen Lewis. It's recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Start your mornings off right with my free morning email, Morning Call. Just search New Statesman Morning Call.